Hey, welcome to the Crosspoint Church Podcast. I'm Rob Chartrand, the lead pastor of the church. We're a church that's for the city in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada, and are passionate about helping people find their way back to God. Hey, if you're new, I'll have a bit to say at the end of the podcast, but in the meantime, let's listen to this Sunday's message. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. It's nice to see you all on this blustery day here at Crosspoint. And for those of you joining us online, uh, thanks for tuning in, and we're glad you're with us as well. Hey, if you're new here, so glad that you're here for the first time. Love to get to know you. Love to help you get connected. You'll find out a little bit more about that after the gathering, and uh, I'll save it for them. But uh, let me just say welcome to our quote-unquote fall relaunch Sunday. Uh, For the record, I mean like four weeks ago when we planned this thing, this is not what we had in mind. Uh, We had no idea that we'd be wearing masks, that it would be raining out. But I will say this, because of the last couple of years, we've learned a thing or two about just rolling with it, right? About just saying, okay, well, this is it. Let's do something a little bit different. I hesitate to use the word pivot. It is overused. I do not like it. Like I say, we don't pivot at Crosspoint. We oscillate. We just go back and forth. And uh, that's what we're going to do this morning. We have this assurance. Jesus Christ is in control. And our God is an ever-present help in a time of need. And so for this reason, we have great confidence this morning. And we're just going to like I said, roll with it. And let me just say to you this morning, uh, if stick around afterwards, have some burgers. I think they're inflating a jumpy castle in the gym. I don't know how that's going to work. I trust the experts on this, okay? Uh, but I hope you stick around afterwards. You'll connect. You'll meet with us. Um, can I just ask us to do one thing? Is to just be helpful, you know? Because uh, I think a lot of people have put something together, and now they're trying to put it together again. But if you can just, you know, if you see somebody and just say, how can I help? You know, talk to one of our staff team or whatnot. That would be really huge for us uh, today, um, both before and afterwards. And those in the balcony, hello. It's good to see you all as well this morning. Um, We're kicking off a new series today, and our new teaching series is called um, Follow Me. And it's framed around what are called our five marks of the disciples. So the five marks of the disciples, if you know anything about Crosspoint, is, is that we, if you were to ask us the question, what is a disciple, we would have a ready response to that question. And that would be to talk about the five marks of a disciple. Uh, if you were to look through the New Testament and you were to investigate the lives of the disciples, you would investigate the teachings of the New Testament, uh, you, very quickly to be able to probably summarize them up into five or six categories. We've chosen five um, for just understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. Uh, So for us, these are growth, service, mission, pursuit, and community. And every fall, what we want to do is we want to return to these five marks because we think that discipleship, the essence of being a follower of Jesus, is really, really, really important. So every five, every every fall, we're going to talk about the five marks. We're doing it this fall. And uh, the reason we do that is because we think it's important, if you're a follower of Jesus, to reflect on your discipleship journey and to recalibrate your life to the mission and the calling that Jesus has for it. So to help you with that, uh, you would have received this morning uh, a tool. Um, This is called the Disciples Life Inventory. Uh, We're going to put one of these out every week, put it into your hands. Those of you who are online, if you go to this message notes, you can get a copy of this there uh, on on our website. Um, but the purpose of this tool is, I just want to encourage you, I want to ask you, as a community, that we do this together, is that we take a time this week, maybe during your devotional time, or maybe where you have just some space in your schedule, and just to walk through this very, very simple tool 
to just kind of recalibrate your life. I encourage you to pray, pray about it before you do it, to walk through it. The goal of this isn't to beat you up as a disciple. Right? That's not the spirit behind this thing. The spirit behind this thing is to say, okay, where am I at? And, and where does God want me? And how can I begin to dream about who I want to become? That's the purpose behind it. And of course, this is all saturated in the gospel. It's all saturated in grace. So we, we hope that you'll uh, look at this tool this week, and we'll have one for you every week, as I said. Um, okay, well, today we're going to talk about the foundational mark of a disciple, and that mark is growth. Uh, our understanding of growth is this is simple. A disciple who has growth in their life is a disciple who has surrendered their life to Christ, and they are under Christ's leadership. And by surrendered, what we mean is they're, they're surrendered to him in obedience. In other words, Jesus, I'll do whatever you say. But they're also surrendered to him in dependence, meaning I can't do what you want me to do unless you help me. Okay, so that's what it means to be a disciple who's under, who has this mark of growth in their life. And let me say this. This is the most important mark. This is the foundational mark. This is the catalyzing mark. If you do not have this mark operating in your life, all of the other marks will not flourish. As a matter of fact, they will feel like drudgery. They will be painful. They will become a form of religion, okay? You need this one mark operating in your life if you want to flourish as a disciple. It's like the root of a tree. If you cut out the roots of a tree, the tree will die. The root is the way in which the tree receives its nourishment. It receives its life. The roots are important. This is the root mark of a disciple. So it's that important. So this morning, let me start with a scenario for, for all of us. Uh, a friend comes up to you and says, hey, can we go out for coffee? And uh, you say, sure, let's go out for coffee. And you're wondering to yourself, as you often do, why do they want me to go out for coffee? Is there an agenda here? But you go to Starbucks, you get your pumpkin spice lattes, you sit down at the table, you pull off the lids, they're steaming. You start with some small chat. But there comes a point in the conversation where you finally cut to the chase and you say to your friend, okay, we're here. What is it you wanted to talk to me about? And your friend says to you, well, I've noticed that you are a person who goes to church. And, and I've noticed that, that sometimes you talk about God in, in a way that, like, you know him in a special way. Or sometimes you'll talk, mention this guy named Jesus. And so I've started to do some investigating myself. I've started to look online, and I want to know what you think to the answer to this question. What does it mean to you to follow Jesus? If your friend asks you that question in that moment, how would you respond to that question? You know, as it turns out, there's actually a lot of confusion out there about the answer to this question. I mean, just spend some time on the internet. Just, just browse around on social media, and you'll discover that there's not a real sense of agreement about what it means to follow Jesus. I, I think if I sat down with 20 Christians, any 20 random Christians from churches in Edmonton, and I sat them down and I asked them to this question, we might come up with some very, very different answers. You might have a different answer than the person who's sitting next to you. What does it mean to follow Jesus? And, and part of the challenge is, part of the problem is, is, is that we're often looking at the answer through different sets of lenses. See, we all wear lenses. Our, 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 our lenses are the way that we interpret the world. They're the way that we interpret reality. Um, and oftentimes we're doing that from a different perspective because our lenses are colored a little bit differently. Your lenses are how you see the world around you. And so because of this, there are some people who might follow Jesus and understand it as maybe looking at it through their cultural lenses. 
So for them, it means showing adherence to a political party or you know, maybe having answers to certain hot-button issues. Then there are other people who might see it maybe through consumer lenses, right? So following Jesus for them is this understanding of Jesus is there. He's like to, there to enhance my life, to create a better, wealthier, happier version of me. It's a consumer type of lens. And then there are others who might see it through maybe a religious lens. So following Jesus to them means maintaining certain traditions or keeping the party line, holding, a boat, uh, you know, holding up to a whole bunch of different rules. But the question then is, what are the right lenses? I mean, do these lenses actually get at the essence of what it means to follow Jesus? So it, it kind of reminds me of an incident uh, from the early days of my marriage. Uh, this is back in the day, like this is a long time ago, for those of you who are really young, like this was back when cell phones were as big as blenders and dial-up internet was the latest rage and texting was done by fax machine. Okay, so this is really a long time ago. My kids were young, like I had a toddler and I had a baby, some of you were in that stage of life, okay? And Karen, my dear beloved wife, had contracted pink eye, okay? Pink eye, highly contagious, really pain painful and annoying. And so some, the doctor gave her some eye drops and he said, these eye drops will eventually fix it, and so take it every single morning. And so that's what she did. And she kept the pink eye medication in the drawer by her bedside table. Now, you need to know something about Karen back then. Back then, Karen was incredibly nearsighted. Like, she was almost blind. She could not legally drive unless she was wearing her glasses. Now, since then, she's had corrective surgery, and, and it's all different now, and it's, it's fine. Um, but back then, yeah, she was pretty much almost blind. Um, well, one fine morning... I woke up to the sound of Karen wailing, okay, just wailing, and, and this totally freaked me out. I was like, oh, I woke up, with that, you know, I thought I'd been dropped into the set of a Jurassic Park movie, and I was in bed with a velociraptor. I mean, that's how bad it was, okay? Uh, and, then, and then I looked over, and she's holding her eye, and she's rocking back and forth in bed. And so, of course, I, I was a very good husband. I said, Karen, could you please keep it down over there? The kids are trying to sleep, okay? No, I, I, I said, honey, what's wrong? How, how can I help? How can I help? And she explained to me, she says, well, I don't know what's wrong. She said, I took the drops that I take every morning and I put them in my eye. And it suddenly just started burning and burning and burning. And now it just feels like my eye is on fire. It's like there's a hot, melted marshmallow stuck to my eyeball. So she said, can you, can you read the drops? Take the drops and, and go read the label and find out if maybe there's any side effects of, of what's going on. So I said, okay, I can do that. And so in a, in a half-awake stupor, I kind of wandered into the light and I started reading the back of the label. And as I'm reading it, I'm thinking to myself, this is really confusing. It's really confusing. Because I thought to myself, this doesn't make any sense. Why would I apply this stuff to my gums around a painful tooth? And suddenly I realized to myself that this wasn't pink eye ointment. And then it dawned on me in that moment, Karen was not wearing her glasses. So then I turned it around and I looked at the product label and I realized that what she had put in her eye wasn't in fact pink eye ointment, it was in fact Origel. And if you know what Origel is, Origel is something that you put on your teeth if you have a toothache and it has like this, this numbing sort of effect. So it's a freezing agent. So Karen had taken freezing agent and she had put it into her eyes, okay? As it turns out, Karen had actually kept both tubes in the drawer, and they were exactly the same size, and so she reached for the pink eye, but she got the Origel, and she put it in her eyes. Origel freezes, but it burns your eyes. Okay. End of story. She got better. <laughs> She's with us today, and she can see, so that's good. So what led to her confusion? Well, quite frankly, it was because she was wearing the wrong set of lenses. 
See, she was looking at the world through the lenses of her eyes when she should have been looking at the world through the lens of her glasses. And I, and I want to propose to us today that the reason why we get so confused about following Jesus is because we're looking at it through the wrong set of lenses. Cultural lenses, consumer lenses, religious lenses. But what I want us to do today is to explore it through Christ's lenses. I'm, I'm hoping today that we can just kind of cut through the confusion and, and see what following Jesus looks like in its purest form through the teachings of Jesus himself. What did Jesus mean when he said, follow me? So, so we're going to look at a little moment. We're going to look at a little moment from the life of Christ, and, and it's found in the 12th chapter of the Gospel of John. So if you get a chance, maybe you have a digital paper Bible with you, I'll get you to turn with me there. Uh, John chapter 12. And as you're doing that, let me just kind of paint the backdrop for you about what's happening in this moment. So, so this moment that we're about to explore took place in Jerusalem. Uh, it is the final week in Christ's life before his death on the cross. Jesus has just made his triumphal entry into the city of Jerusalem. And of course, as he's coming into Jerusalem, crowds are gathering. There's palm branches being waved. People are singing, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And John's gospel actually reveals the reason why that crowd had gathered was because they had heard about what Jesus had just done recently. See, Jesus had raised from the dead this man named Lazarus, and the crowd heard about him. They're like, whoa, this has got to be, maybe he's the Messiah. Who is this guy, right? So this crowd had gathered to welcome Jesus into the city. Meanwhile, in that exact same moment, the religious leaders kind of stood off at a distance, and they looked at Jesus, and they thought to themselves, I don't know if this is going to be good. They were deeply concerned that the whole world had now started to go after Jesus, and they were poised and ready to do something about it. So the air in Jerusalem, in this moment, if you can imagine, was filled with tension, polarization, people on one side and another trying to figure out, what do we do with this guy named Jesus? And this is where we pick things up at verse 20. So I'll read the text, and I'll get you to follow along with me as I do that. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and they asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. So Philip went, and he told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went, and they told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So, so this moment takes place at a, what's a turning point in the story of Jesus. It's kind of a hinge moment. Some Greeks went to meet with Jesus, likely because they'd heard about Lazarus, right? And, and they were God-fearing Gentiles. So when it says Greeks, that's the language they spoke. It's not their nationality. But they were in Jerusalem to worship at temple during the Passover time. And they were trying to get a backstage pass to Jesus through Philip. Why, why did they do that? Well, Philip was a Greek name. He was Jewish, but he had a Greek name, and he was from a Greek region. So they thought, okay, we kind of got an insider here. Maybe Philip can give us access to Jesus. But most commentators will say that this moment was a foreshadow, a symbolic foreshadow of what was about to come. 
It anticipated the inclusion of the Gentiles into God's kingdom. See, think about it. In this moment, while the Jewish leaders were turning against Jesus, the Gentiles were running towards him. So it showed how Jesus was about to usher in a new way where the entire world could come and follow after him. And the reason why we know this was a hinge moment because is because it's actually in the text. I mean, look at what Jesus said in verse 23. What did he say? He said, the hour has come. Now, what did he mean by that? Well, Jesus actually used this phrase a lot in John's gospel. He often talked about the hour that was coming. And, and he talked about, it's not my time, right? So, for example, when his mother Mary asked him to play bartender at a wedding feast, what did he say to her? He said, oh, woman, my hour has not yet come. Or when authorities in Jerusalem were, were kind of getting nervous, really nervous about people calling Jesus the Messiah. They wanted to arrest him, but they weren't able to. Why? Because his hour had not yet come. So as you read through John's gospel, you, you get this sense that Jesus' life was, was set on a timer, like it was winding down to this moment, that he had this scheduled appointment that he was destined to keep. So what was the hour? Well, the hour, of course, as you continue reading the text in, in the Gospel of John, was his death on the cross. This was the reason why Jesus came. The Father sent Jesus into the world to die and to rise again so that he could be victorious over sin and death and the grave and that Jesus might be the catalyst for the restoration of all things. And that includes me and that includes you. This was the hour. This was why he came. Now, you also notice in verse 23 that it says that this is how Jesus would be glorified. It's a great reversal when you think about it. That Jesus, the King of all kings, would be glorified through the shame of the cross. So it wouldn't come about by him seeking his own glory in the world. Rather, it would come about by him seeking his Father's glory in the world and doing what his Father had called him to do. See, what Jesus is doing in this moment, he's explaining something to us. He's explaining to us what's called the law of the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God, is, it, it's an upside-down kingdom. And the kingdom of God actually requires a separate set of lenses to understand it. In the kingdom of God, if you want to be great, you have to be a servant. If you want to go up, you need to go down. If you want glory, you need to seek God's glory. If you want to live then you need to die. And you'll notice how Jesus puts it in the next phrase. Here's what he says. He says, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. How many, how many amateur gardeners we got among us today? And you at home, you can put up your hand, though I can't see it. How many any amateur gardeners? That's it? The rest of you just like shop at Superstore? Okay, yeah, yeah, okay. Right. So, you know, let me ask you. You got any leftover seeds in your shed or in your drawer at home? Anybody? Yeah, I do. I got like packets of seeds. I only use like, like one-tenth of a package. I don't know why they give me so many of them. They're so small, right? What happens to those packets of seeds, those seeds that are left in the packet? You leave them for a year. What happens to them? Absolutely nothing. Right. You're exactly right. If, if the seed does not get buried in the ground, the seed does not germinate. The seed needs to die. It needs to be buried in order for it to grow. And, and what's amazing is that each of these tiny little seeds, like carrot seeds, they're so small, right? But each of these tiny little seeds is just full of potential. It's full of genetic life, just kind of waiting to explode. Carrots and sunflowers and, and lettuce and radishes. You'll know what's in my garden. 
But here's what's important. As long as that seed stays in the packet, if that seed is not buried, if that seed does not die, then it will not grow. It will not flourish. To spring to life, it must be buried. But Jesus says the end result is if it is buried, if it does die, it will produce much fruit. This is the law of the kingdom of God. In order to produce life, something must die. And so Jesus died in order that we might live. His death on the cross produced much fruit. As a matter of fact, it produced fruit that contained seeds, that produced more fruit, that contained seeds, that produced more fruit. You have this idea of the expansive work of the kingdom of God over time. And billions of people spanning 2,000 years on every continent can attest to this, that Jesus' one act of death produced a harvest of fruit. Bountiful, expansive. But here's the thing, is that this, this law of the kingdom wasn't just for Jesus. Let's look again at verse 25. Here's what it says. It says, whoever loves his life loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. So the question is this, is who is this law for? Well, notice the whoever of verse 25, and notice the anyone of verse 26. The answer is clear. Who is this law for? This law is for everyone. Men, women, the young, the old, the rich, the poor, Jews and Gentiles, whoever, anyone. And so Jesus is saying this. He says that for anyone to live, anyone, no matter who you are, they must first die. And if you cling to this life, you will die. If you live only for yourself, Jesus says, you will die. But if you die to this life, and if you die to yourself, you will what? You will live. And so Jesus is inviting us to bury the seed and to watch it grow. Now, this all seems kind of counterintuitive, doesn't it? I mean, is the way to a better life not to get after it, to go after life? I mean, come on, Jesus. Haven't you heard that you're supposed to live your best life? Right? Jesus, shouldn't you rework this principle for the modern day? You know, we're in a day where we design our life on our terms. After all, isn't life all about me, Jesus? I mean, what I want, how I want, when I want it. This dying thing. It's absurd, right? But that's the nature of humanity, right? That's the nature of our spirit. We so often just want to cling to this life as it is. It, it reminds me of a fable. It's a fable that was written by a man named William Bosch. And the fable is called The Old Man of Crete. So there was an old man. He lived on this breathtakingly beautiful island, the Isle of Crete, this Greek island. And, and he loved this island so much that as he was dying, he asked his sons to carry him down to the beach. And when he got to the breach, as he was breathing his last breath, he grasped a handful of the soil of Crete, and so he died happy. But as the fable goes, uh, as the old man entered into the afterlife, and he was waiting to enter into heaven, God himself came out to meet him. And God said to him, the joy of heaven was his. All he had to do was to let go of the soil of Crete, and he could enter into eternal bliss. But of course, the old man, he couldn't even imagine that. He couldn't imagine losing what was left of his island. So he remained outside of heaven with the soil still clutched in his hand. 
But of course, God was determined to have this old man into heaven. So he went out to them in the form of one of his oldest, dearest friends. And they sat down together and they spent time together and they shared drinks just like the good old days. And his friend invited the old man to enter into the joy of heaven with him. But of course, the old man told him that he couldn't let go of the soil of Crete. But still, the old man couldn't do it and he remained outside. So much time passed by. And the old man grew older and frailer and weaker. So God this time went to him in the form of his young granddaughter. And they played together. And the old man told her stories. And they laughed and they giggled. And the grandfather told him, uh, the granddaughter told him that he could enter into the joy of heaven. But all he needed to do was to let go of the soil of Crete. Now by this time, the old man had very little strength left in him, and he could barely hold the soil of Crete in his hand. And as the precious dirt from Crete slipped through his fingers, his granddaughter led him inside into heaven. But to his amazement, as he entered heaven, one of the first things he discovered when he got there was the Isle of Crete. The point of the fable, and it is a fable, okay? It is not theology, okay? The point of the fable is that our deepest longings are never met by clinging to this life, but by releasing their hold on us. In order to find his island, the old man first had to give it up. And similarly, to find our truest life, we need to loosen the grip on our lives. To receive Christ's abundant, eternal life, we must we must surrender our own. So let's look at this from another angle. Let's look at it from Matthew chapter 16. Here Jesus has more to say about the law of the kingdom. Look what he says. He says, then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone could come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life would lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? I, I have to say that this passage of Scripture is deeply meaningful for me because this was the passage of Scripture that Jesus used to get a grip on my life and to pull me into the kingdom, even when I was most reluctant to do so. And I'll talk about that a little bit later. What does it mean to follow Jesus? Here's the answer. To stop clinging to your life, to surrender, to let it go, to lose your life for Jesus in order to find it. That's it in its simplest, purest form. And of course, this is what Jesus was talking about in John 12 when he, when he said that we should hate our life in this world rather than love it. That's an interesting phrase when you think about it. Hate my life in this world, <laughs> right? Like, what is Jesus talking about there? Well, I, I know that he's not talking about hating the world of people, so he's not saying hate people, right? And I don't think he's talking about hate your life in general, Although under COVID, that's probably true of most of us. I hate my life in COVID, okay? But that's not what he's talking about here. He's talking about hating life within the world system in which we live. The pattern of this world, the, the attitudes and the values of this world. Because, because we live in a world of, of posturing, of platforming. It's a world of, of greed and self-indulgence, of consumption, jealousy, insecurity, brokenness, entitlement, and I could go on and on and on. But this is the world system we have around us. For the most part, we're generally good people, but then when we're kind of pressed in the vice, like a season like COVID, suddenly all of these things start coming to the surface that are really in our hearts. 
This is the world that Jesus is speaking of. And the Bible teaches that this present world that we live in is actually under the control of the evil one. That, that the evil one is actually working through the systems of this world to oppose God's purposes. And that's hard for us to imagine, especially if we live in a world where, where we're really big on, on you know, the scientific method and really objective evidence, right? To talk about a spiritual world that's behind the scenes is really difficult for us to get our heads around. I understand that. I get that. But this is what Jesus would teach. So the evil one ultimately wants to oppose God's purposes, and he wants to turn people's hearts away from God. And to do that, he has established a world system that is in opposition to God, that's antithetical to God. And Jesus is saying, if you look for life in this world, you will ultimately lose it. But a follower of Jesus recognizes the fallenness of this world. They begin to observe that it's, this world is actually empty and it's, it's fallen and, and it's lifeless and broken. They understand that chasing after this world ultimately doesn't satisfy the soul's infinite longings, this deep cavern that only God himself can fill. And so the disciple of Jesus begins to despise what the world offers. They begin to cringe that they ever actually chased after these things. And they hate how this world has had a control over them, how it's deceived them. So Jesus is saying the only way to receive the abundant eternal life of God is to follow after him, to give up your life, and to find it in him. Following Jesus means to commit your whole life to him, everything. Now, sadly, sadly, uh, there are a whole lot of people who would say that they follow Jesus but really they are just fans of Jesus. Um, sports fan. Uh, some of you are sports fans. Some of you are fans of pop stars. Some of you are fans of people on Instagram. I'm not sure. Okay, but let me use sports fans, for example. Uh, a sports fan is, is someone who supports their team by going to all the games. A sports fan might, might sometimes wear the jersey. A sports fan might uh, know the names of some of the members on the team. And, and if they're a really good fan they might actually memorize a whole lot of stats, right? Or if they're a really good fan, they might actually paint their bodies, okay? That's what a really good sports fan does. Uh, I remember reading this story of the Winnipeg Blue Bombers sports fan. His name is Chris Matthew, and you might know this guy, okay? But when his team lost the Grey Cup in 2001, he vowed that he would never wear pants again until the Winnipeg Blue Bombers won the Grey Cup. That's a, that's a pretty big commitment for a fan, right? Especially if you live in Winnipeg, okay? Not wearing pants. Um, and it, he actually held to it. Turns out he did not wear pants for 18 years. Now, he made one exception. He says, if I go to a funeral and they wish me to put on my pants, I'll put on my pants. But other than that, I am not wearing pants until the Winnipeg Blue Bombers win. Fortunately, Winnipeg did win in 2019, and he was able to put his pants back on. Now, I will say this. It's funny. You, 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 if you read the news about this, his wife did go on record with CBC News to say that he actually likes wearing shorts and he actually likes a lot of attention. So, I mean, it wasn't really hard for him to go without wearing pants. Chris Matthews was a fan of the Blue Bombers. But the question is, is this the kind of commitment that Jesus is asking of us? Does he ask us to lose our pants or does he ask us to lose our lives? 
You see, there are, there are many fans of Jesus who are curious. They, they might even be convinced, uh, but they are not necessarily committed. They might like the idea of Jesus, but they don't really love Jesus. They might have some intellectual certainty about Jesus, but they don't have this internal surrender with Jesus. Jesus had, had plenty of fans, actually, when he walked this earth. As you read through the Gospels, you realize that Jesus had this way of drawing large crowds. Lots of people wanted to get close to Jesus and check him out. There, there are a lot of people who were, were just um, curious because they heard about his miracles and they wanted maybe to see a little bit more. There were some people who were actually hungry and they wanted Jesus to feed him. There were others who were captivated by his teachings. Nobody had ever teach, taught in this way and with such authority. And so they, they wanted to come near Jesus to hear more. But most of these people, these crowds that followed after Jesus, were fans and they were not followers. And, and there were numerous times where Jesus knew this to be true, and he turned on the crowd, and he would actually challenge them. And he would call them out, and he says, listen, you need to step out from the crowd and become a true follower of me. And sometimes, sometimes, Jesus even confronted people in their complacency. So, so there's a great example of this in, in Luke chapter 9. There were three men who came to Jesus, and they said they wanted to follow him. But they had these conditions in the contract with Jesus. So they weren't willing to follow Jesus in three important ways. They weren't willing to follow Jesus wherever. They weren't willing to follow Jesus whenever. And they weren't willing to follow Jesus whatever he asked of them. They had conditional followership, okay? So we'll pick up the story in Luke chapter 9. This first guy who came to Jesus wasn't willing to follow Jesus wherever. So here's what it says, verse 57. As they were walking along the road, a man said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus replied, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So, so this guy was willing to go wherever Jesus would go. But for him, what we discover is it was more like a cute little slogan, right? Something you might put on a Christian t-shirt or bumper sticker or, or a coffee cup. Likely what he thought was, I'm just going to jump on the Jesus bus tour and enjoy the ride to fame. But Jesus saw right through him. Because here's what Jesus said. He said to him, hey, bro, listen, I'm homeless. I don't think that you can actually follow me wherever I'm about to go. So then there's this next guy, and he, and he wasn't willing to go whenever. Verse 59, he said to another man, follow me. But the man replied, Lord, first let me go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, you might think that Jesus is being a little bit over the top here, like a little harsh, right? A little callous. Why can't this guy go to his dad's funeral? But here's the thing. He didn't say that his dad was dead yet. He just said, I want to go and bury my father. Likely, his dad was still living. And so what he was essentially was saying is, Jesus, when my parents finally die, then I will follow you. So uh, we don't know why he was waiting for his parents to die for some reason. Maybe they didn't approve of him following Jesus, or, or maybe he thought he could inherit from the family business, and if he stuck around a little bit longer and, you know, have some backup insurance in case this Jesus gig didn't turn out so well. We don't know, okay? But what we do know is that he was delaying things. He wasn't willing to follow Jesus whenever, which is interesting when you think about it. Because when you think about the early disciples, when Jesus called them, how did they respond? It says they dropped their nets, they left everything behind, and they followed him immediately, immediately. Well, finally, the, the last guy wasn't willing to follow whatever. Verse 61. So still another said, I will follow you, Lord, but first let me go back and say goodbye to my family. 
And Jesus replied, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Now, in that culture, I mean, if you were, you were to go back and you were to say goodbye to your family, like, it wouldn't be just like a quick, quick, okay, we'll see you later. I'll catch up to you on Instagram. Text me when you get there, right? No, no, no. In that culture, if you went back to say goodbye to your family, it would have taken weeks to do that. There would have been parties. There would have been going away, you know, whatever, okay? You couldn't have just walked away from your family in a minute. So if that man went back to say goodbye to his family, Jesus would likely have moved on from that region because Jesus was an itinerant evangelist, an itinerant prophet, all of the roles that he carried. He went from place to place to place. So what we discover in the text is this was actually a bit of a smokescreen. It was probably lip service. This guy wasn't willing to let go of his cozy family ties. And so you can almost feel this annoyance in Jesus' words as he's saying to him. He says, listen, nothing should become before service in the kingdom of God. You should never have regrets about that. You should never look back on your life and say, oh man, I really wish that I hadn't followed Jesus. So friends, a, a follower of Jesus, as, as, as we read the text, I mean, this goes a little bit deeper, but it's someone who has died to self so that they might live for God. It's someone who says, the world has no hold on me, and I have surrendered everything to Christ, wherever, whenever, and I'll do whatever it is he asks of me. Now the question is, why would we do that for Jesus? Why would we follow him unto death in this way? And the answer to that question is, is because he did the exact same thing for us. He was willing to go wherever. He left heaven to come into earth. He was willing to do it whenever, at the Father's appointed time. And he was willing to do whatever, even to the extent of death on a cross. You see, the good news is, is that because of Jesus, we can begin again with God. That Jesus paid for our rebellion on the cross so that we wouldn't have to, and he offers each and every one of us a new beginning, a new life in him. You cannot earn it. You cannot buy it. You cannot barter for it. There's nothing you can do to convince God to love you any more or to love you any less. It is just something that is freely offered to each and every one of us. And in exchange, Jesus asks us, just as he gave his life up for us, is that we will surrender our lives to him as well, to put our complete trust in him, our complete trust in him in surrender and say, Jesus... I want to do what you ask of me to do. And Jesus, I need your help to help me to do it. There comes a point in every relationship, in everyone's life, where you have to define the relationship. It's called the DTR conversation. You've heard of this before. I know it's a little bit old, but the DTR, right? Define the relationship. So let's say you're a guy in your 20s, you're single, and you're spending a lot of time with a girl, right? You're going out for coffee, you're texting each other throughout the day, you're, you're dropping some witty memes on the Facebook Messenger, right? Well, if you keep this up, one day she's going to ask you the question. She's going to say to you, hey, okay, what are we? Are we in the friend zone here, or are we in the dating zone? I think we need to sit down and define the relationship. It's going to happen. I guarantee it. If you're doing it right now, wait for it. Just wait for it. Because what she's thinking is, I'm tired of you stringing me along, so stop being a coward, buck up, and let's sit down, and let's define the relationship. In the same way, every single day, Jesus asks us to define the relationship with him. And he asks us, are we just fans, or are we followers? 
Now, I think maybe for, I don't know where you're at today. I don't know your story. I know a lot of your stories. But for you, how would you answer that question? How would you define the relationship? And maybe for you, you, this is something that you need to make that decision for the first time. You've never actually made it. Maybe you've played church or you've gone to church or you've grown up in church or, or maybe you're checking out church for the very first time. I don't know. But I have been there. I remember there was a point in my life, I was 17 years old, where I needed to define the relationship. I had read through the Gospels. Jesus, through various ways, had gotten a hold of my life. I felt this compulsion in my heart. I knew what I needed to do. I didn't want to do it because I loved my life and I wanted to hold on to my life, but I knew it was the right thing to do. I needed to surrender my life to Jesus. He was asking me, Rob, will you define the relationship? And I have to say that I made that decision and I've never looked back and I've never regretted that decision to surrender my life to Jesus, to receive his abundant life, and to walk with him every day. I'm thankful for that. But maybe that's where you are today. Maybe today for you, this is the first time where you will say, I need to surrender my life to him. Maybe for some of you, you've, you've maybe had your hand on the plow, okay? And you've been pushing forward, but things have happened and intersected in your life. A heartbreak, covid bad decision after bad decision, and you find yourself far from Jesus. You find yourself adrift without an anchor. Maybe for you today, it's just a matter of recalibrating your life and saying, Jesus, I I know that I've walked away. I know that I'm far from you. Today, I need to make that decision. I don't want to just be a fan. I don't want to be just this distant voice, but I want to be a follower. And then I think for every single one of us, this is a question that we have to ask every single day. You know, the Apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, he says, I die daily. I die daily. So when we wake up in the morning, when we go to bed at night, the question that we are always asked by Jesus is, Am I, are you a fan or are you a follower? Will you follow me? Will you follow me? And the beauty is, is that for each and every one of us, no matter who you are, no matter where you come from, no matter what, where you're at or what decisions you've made, there is grace for you today. That Jesus is wide open to say, hey, come and follow me. Let's define the relationship together. I want to give you an opportunity to do that this morning. And that you could wait. You could wait until later. I don't think Jesus would want us to wait. I think Jesus would want us to respond in the moment if he's speaking to you and if he's addressing your heart. I think this is a great time to do that. But I just want to give you an opportunity to do that because I care about you. And I know that Christ cares about you more. So I'm just going to give us a chance to to bow our heads and to be in quietness and in reflection and in prayer for a moment. And I want to guide you as we do that this morning. So let's just take a moment and focus our hearts and attention on Christ amazing thing is, is, is that no matter where you're at today, he is near to you. And he draws near to those who draw near to him. And so Jesus is in this moment. I know that you are with us. And I thank you that you care a great deal about every person who's here. You care so much about that person that you gave up your life that they might be able to come to you and live in relationship with you and receive your abundant life. And so God, wherever people are at today, I pray and I call to you for a surrender of their hearts and their lives. I pray that for me as well. I want to give you a moment to to just answer this question. 
What is Jesus saying to you? And how might you respond in this moment? Take a moment, reflect, and pray. And maybe for the first time, you might say to Jesus, Jesus, I surrender my life to you in faith. I put my complete trust in you. I give you my all. Take a moment. thank you, Lord, that you never tire of us, that your patience for us is so great, that no matter how many times we, um, we drift, no matter how many times we fail or step away from your will for our lives, that you're always gracious to us, that you always call us back to yourself, and that you're ready and poised to give us life. Lord, following you in these days is difficult. It's hard. And so we look to you. Lord, would you give us the grace to walk into this world as you would have us walk into this world, to be loving, to be kind, to be gracious, to be life-giving, to be generous and sacrificial, to be like you, Jesus. We need your grace, so we surrender ourselves to you. We surrender ourselves to depending on our own self and our own strength. We surrender ourselves to um, just lean into you fully, 100%, for all that we need. We thank you, Lord, that you are faithful and you will do it and you will provide. And so we bless you as your people. We honor you. We lift you up above all things, above all people. And we give you praise in Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope it's helped you in your spiritual journey and it's helped you draw closer to God. Let me tell you a little bit about us. Crosspoint gathers as one church on Sundays in Northeast Edmonton. And you can find out our location and more about us by visiting our website, 
thecrosspointchurch.ca. We also meet throughout the week throughout Edmonton in what we call home groups. These are smaller communities of learning, laughter, community, uh, transformation. We, we think that the journey of faith was never intended to be an independent exercise. It's, it's something that we do together. So please visit our website and find out how you can get connected to a home group near you. If you listen to our podcast regularly, why not make it shareable? You could like us on iTunes or share our podcast with other people. But more importantly, we hope you will get connected with other people and talk about what you've learned. Again, hey, thanks for listening. We pray you'll experience Christ's love in a very real and profound way this week.